I feel like the life gets drained from the room as these kids leave, and it kind of makes me sad. Well, hey there. How are you all this morning? Um, I am super excited to be able to have the opportunity to bring the message this morning. And I want to say thank you before we even begin, because so many of you responded last week um, to our ask to bring supplies here to Honduras for our Hondur- or here to church for our Honduras mission trip. So to all of you who have been bringing supplies during this last week, I please want or I want you to know that we are extending a heartfelt thank you to you. All of those supplies are packed in suitcases already, and will be headed to Honduras in just a few days. So thank you, conduit. Yeah. We're so excited to represent you and be conduits of all that God is doing here in Jamestown and that we believe he is doing globally in the rest of the world. Um, So how many of you here are familiar with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra? I need a show of hands. Okay, good. So most of you. Um, So the Trans-Siberian Orchestra in my family literally means Christmas. Like, it's probably the only Christmas music that my mom has played for, like, the last two decades. No joke. Um, so for almost two-thirds of my life, my mom has been playing Trans-Siberian Orchestra at Christmas time, and we're ne- we've never been allowed to have any other Christmas music in the house. And I've kind of continued that tradition on since I became the matriarch of my household as well. Um, no joke, though. I think my mom last year celebrated that she has been going to Trans-Siberian Orchestra concerts consecutively for 15 years now. (laughs) Consecutively, every year she goes to a Trans-Siberian Orchestra concert. So, I mean, that's more than a decade. Um, My husband, who married into our family, has come to recognize that this is the only kind of music that we permit during the holidays at our household. It is Trans-Siberian Orchestra, or, whoa. or bust in our house. Like, we are die-hard groupies. In fact, um, we're such affectionate fans that we don't even call them Trans-Siberian Orchestra anymore. We just call them TSO. Just TSO. Like, hey, babe, can you put on some TSO? You know what we should be listening to right now? It's almost Thanksgiving. Some TSO. <laughs> okay, but here's the thing, is that um, for most of you... Most of you know that my husband is from Honduras, and that English is his second language. And, um, (laughs) sorry, babe. Um, He doesn't always get things right when he says them in English. In fact, a lot of times, he gets them wrong, especially things. (laughs) He's looking at me in the soundboard. I can't look at you while I say this. Um, So, (laughs) a lot of times, there's like these euphemisms that we say in English that he gets ridiculously wrong, and it's hilarious. And one of them is, um, like, we always say, um, let's hit the road, Jack, right? (laughs) For eight years, he has been saying in our household, let's go hit Jack on the road. (laughs) There are so many others that I'm sure you guys have picked up on as well, but (laughs) abbreviations, that is his least favorite. Like, he doesn't understand why in English we have to abbreviate everything. He always gets them wrong. His workmates, like, he'll write an email and he'll shoot off an abbreviation, like, TTYL, and it will be totally wrong, like, the wrong letters, and his work peers will be like, I, 
not sure what that email was about, but okay. Um, anyways, TSO, abbreviated, for Trans-Siberian Orchestra is our favorite in our household. Have you ever been to a concert? Would you give me a show of hands if you've been to a TSO concert before? Okay, so a few people here. Um, my husband and I have joined my mom to quite a few of them, and it is just a mesmerizing experience. So the Trans-Siberian Orchestra has a 60-piece orchestra, and usually whenever they go to do a concert, they choose the local orchestra. So like when we go to concerts in Buffalo, they'll use the Buffalo um, Orchestra as their orchestra. So a 60-piece orchestra, a heavy metal band, a team of vocalists, a team of dancers, a team of people who are managing their pyrotechnics, and then all of the other special effects. It is just astounding the way that they bring all of these different, drastically different, I mean, orchestra and heavy metal, the way that they bring all of it together in sync and in harmony, it's just incredible. So um, since the holiday mood is already kind of in the air and it looks like a, snow, a snowball out there, um, I thought maybe we could play a little bit of a TSO song this morning. So Jake, would you indulge me for a moment? Maybe, maybe they're gonna indulge me. <laughs> All right, cool. <laughs> it's okay, maybe, maybe it's not the thing today. <laughs> I thought it was, but maybe it's not. Um, anyways, last year, we went to a TSO concert for my birthday, and um, my, my mom and my husband and I were there, and um, it was, I think, last year's concert tour was the first time that they've toured since the founder and creator of TSO had just passed away. His name was Paul O'Neill, and he is the one who architected, engineered, and had the vision for Trans-Siberian Orchestra more than 20 years ago. And he passed away last year, so the concert tour um, th this last year was in honor of him. So at one point during um, the concert on my birthday, they paused, and they played a song um, as a tribute to him, and this is what they said. They said, Paul O'Neill will always be remembered for telling us and whispering over the voices of people who said this couldn't be done. He would say, individually, we're fine, but together, we're better. So in preparation for this week's message, I spent some time this week um, brushing up on the Thanksgiving story. I know that sounds kind of silly, but I had forgotten a lot of the elements of this story, and I'm glad I did brush up because my six-year-old came home from school this week and was quizzing me like so hardcore, hardcore on the store, so, story, so I'm glad I brushed up on it. But there's something about being an adult and relearning this story that is really, really captivating. And I think that it would be captivating for you too. So indulge me for a moment while I share a bit of this story. So in September 1620, the Mayflower left Plymouth, England, carrying 102 passengers aboard who were seeking religious freedom and who were search, in search of a new land to call home. Their voyage lasted them 66 treacherous days before they initially arrived at the Massachusetts Bay where they began to establish a village called Plymouth. But their very first winter was brutal. More than half of the passengers died during their first winter from infectious disease, 
from exposure to the elements and from malnutrition. It is likely, and I learned this week, that the entire group of settlers would have eventually died from disease and malnutrition if it weren't for the spring arrival of a Native American named Squanto, who spoke English and had mercy on the settlers. Squanto taught the settlers, who we now call pilgrims, how to cultivate corn, how to extract sap from maple trees, how to catch fish in the rivers, and how to avoid poisonous plants. But his most important achievement is that he helped the settlers forge an alliance with the Wampanoag, a local tribe of Native Americans for peace, cohabitation, and mutual support. So flash forward six months later after this alliance has been forged and Squanto has taught the pilgrims these things. And in November 1621, the, pil the pilgrims' very first corn harvest had proved successful and they were no longer dying from malnutrition. Their village of Plymouth was actually thriving. So Governor William Bradford organized a celebratory feast and invited the entire Wampanoag tribe to thank them for helping them to survive. The feast went on for three whole days as the pilgrims and the Native Americans together celebrated their alliance, their betterness together, and their harvest. This is the story of Thanksgiving. Would you mind opening up your Bibles this morning to the book of Galatians? There are a couple of hard copy Bibles in your pews. Or you can open up your smartphone and look at the Bible app, either through your version or through the Conduit app. I'm going to have you open up to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians, chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 1 in Galatians, chapter 3. You with me? Okay. So Galatians chapter 3, starting with verse 1, says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Go ahead and skip down a bit in chapter 3, all the way down to verse 25. Tracking with me? All right. Verse 25 says that, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. So this letter was written to the church of Galatians, a church of primarily Jews who had come to believe in Jesus Christ as the resurrected Savior, but they weren't all that great at the inclusion of Gentiles at the time of this writing. Remember that pre-Jesus, the Jews had kind of hoarded the table of salvation. They kept it isolated, and the idea of belonging to God all to themselves. But then Jesus, the Messiah, came, and he literally flipped the table over, and he opened up the invitation of salvation and belonging at the table to the entire world to Jews and to Gentiles, to slaves and to the free, to men and to women. He made the table a welcoming, level, equal place where all could share in the sonship of the Father. This is the bread and butter of what I want to share with you this morning, and here is why it is so revolutionary. You see, the Old Testament, I'm going to argue this morning, is marked by the Tower of Babel. Is anyone in this room familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel? Okay, so there's a few of you here. Um, the Tower of Babel is, is literally where diversity and different people groups and different cultures began in the Old Testament. A lot of separation began at the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament. Um, and one man named Abraham... Um, from him, one nation called Israel was chosen to carry forward the salvation plan to be a bridge of blessing to all of these different people, groups, and cultures all over the world. God called Abraham right in the beginning of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, and he said, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. But here's the problem, is that Abraham's descendants weren't all that good on delivering on that promise. Not all people geographically spread throughout the earth with different tongues and different rulers and different religions. They weren't blessed through them. In fact, I, it seems to be, with the exception of a few standout moments, the Jews very much dispossessed every other people group and tribe around them. So what happened? What happens between the timeline of the Old Testament and the New Testament? Jesus happens. His incarnation very literally means he stepped in. He stepped in and he stood up to bring salvation to the entire world. So the era of the Old Testament where humanity was bound by sin and hatred and division is marked by this Tower of Babel event. But the era of the New Testament, I want to argue this morning, was marked by Acts chapter 2, the very beginning of the church. Can you flip your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 for me? Acts chapter 2. The context here in Acts chapter 2 is that Jesus has just been resurrected and he has ascended to the Father and the disciples are awaiting the gift of Holy Spirit of the Holy Spirit in the city of Jerusalem just as he res as he instructed them before his ascension. So Acts chapter 2, the disciples are gathered in Jerusalem and they're waiting. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 begins by saying when the day of Pentecost arrived they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and it rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it then that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they must be filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and on my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Jesus gave his disciples a commandment to build his church. And it was to make disciples of all nations, right? He said, go to them all. This is his great commandment. It's at the end of the book, or at the end of the book of Matthew and of all the gospels. Um, and have you heard that saying, put your money where your mouth is? So Jesus gave the disciples this commandment of go and make disciples of all nations. But here's kind of like this put your money where your mouth is moment. I find that like a really repetitive theme throughout the Bible. Um, but he teaches the disciples, no, for real. I, I was really serious about that. Um, this all nations, this all people thing, this was for real. Acts chapter 2 is the anti-Tower of Babel. Jesus restores and brings back together what was divided at Babel through his plan A, the new church that he is building to carry the gospel to all of the world. This is our magna church. This is our magna here at Conduit. Jesus flung wide, opened the gate to salvation and belonging. And his Holy Spirit backed him up and vouched, this is for everyone, every man, every woman, and every child. A little while ago, um, I think about 
three or four weeks ago now, we held an event here at Conduit called Vision 2025, um, where we kind of expounded the dreams and vision that God has laid on our heart as staff and as a leadership team for our city and beyond. And this is the way that we penned that. Every man, every woman, and every child. This is the pendulum on which it all swings. Every man, every woman, and every child. These were Jesus' final words to us. Go get them. Go get them all with no exclusions. So this is the context for Galatians 3, that first um, Bible reading that we read this morning. So Paul is writing to the Galatians, and he's just kind of wringing his head saying, Guys! What is this boxing up that is happening? What is this closing of doors? Wake up. That age is over. You don't have to be the guardians of this anymore. This same faith that we inherited through our father Abraham is now available to everyone. Jew and Gentile, men and women, through the gift of salvation, slave and free, all of us, the table is level. And we are all called sons and daughters of the king. Can you bring verses 25 through 28 of Galatians 3 back up on that screen? Okay. But now that faith has come, it says, we are no longer under a guardian. We have nothing to keep to ourselves. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, there was this table, and it was set for one. But then Jesus started pulling out chairs. And to the poor and the powerless, to the rich and the mainstream, to the rulers, to the prostitutes, to the criminals, he started pulling up chairs and he asked his church to be a mouthpiece with signs that said this, you can sit with us. Maybe that will say. You belong here. This. This is the prophetic declaration of the New Testament. Is that table that was set for just one in full fruition of the promise made to Abraham that you will be a blessing to all of the nations. Jesus comes, he steps in, he stands up for every people group and every group of people who've been disenfranchised and disowned by the Jews and by the rest of the world. And he says, I'm pulling up chairs. Come, there's a spot for you. I'm pulling up chairs. You can sit with us. You belong here. There is a space for us all. <sighs> if that isn't powerful... I don't know what is. I have this friend in Honduras who um, for the last six years has been doing this really incredible thing. It's called Una Cena con el Rey, which translates to a dinner with the king. So each year 
for the last six years, um, he has mobilized enough resources and volunteers in the capital city, Tegucigalpa of Honduras, where we'll be headed in a few days, to give, to provide this really incredible, um, elegant banquet for 2,500 people who have no one else to spend Christmas Eve with. He invites the homeless, the addicts, all of the kids living on the streets, the prostitutes in the downtown area of the city, and he doesn't provide a modest, easy, efficient handout, right? Would you, would you agree with me that most service agencies who are trying to do a good work are providing a modest, easy, efficient handout? That's not what my friend does. That's not the movement he started. He creates this extravagant and breathtaking experience of belonging. A moment on one of the loneliest nights of the year for those who are homeless and living on the streets on Christmas Eve to say, you can sit with us. You belong here at the table. Would you pull up that image for me, guys? Yeah, that's not a very good picture, but in the back of it, you can kind of see this incredibly elegant banquet table that he sets up in the downtown area of Tegucigalpa, and he strings lights over it, and there's white linens and red napkins, and everything is fancy and beautiful, and these people get to experience a moment of, this is what salvation is all about. We are all welcome at the table. In many ways, I would say that that is what the Wampanoag Indians did to the pilgrims. The pilgrims were foreigners, and they were weak from malnutrition and illness. And they would have died. They couldn't find their new way in this new land of America. And Squanto befriended them. Now, you know what's really interesting about Squanto, and I swear that I just learned this for the first time this week, but maybe somewhere back in my education in elementary school I learned this. But this was a detail that just stood out to me this week and spoke so loud. Um, do you know why Squanto knew English and was able to communicate with the pilgrims? Anyone else know this? Because I was, yeah, come on. Why did he know English? Yeah. Yep, totally. So um, Squanto had been kidnapped by an English sea captain on an earlier voyage that Europeans made to the New World, and he was sold into slavery back in Europe. We have no idea how long he was there, but he was in Europe for quite some time before he managed to escape the slave owner that he belonged to and get, uh, get to London and get back on an exploratory trip back to the New World, to America. Can you imagine, think about this for a minute, the context of that. Can you imagine the courage and love and mercy required to conquer that kind of abuse and fear and tragedy and act out again in friendship? Think about it. The last time that Squanto had been approached by a European, he was captured, he was sold into slavery, he was likely abused, and he was taken very far from his homeland, away from his family. And so when the pilgrims begin settling at Plymouth Bay, I have to imagine that Squanto and the other Native Americans that belonged to his tribe likely viewed these foreigners with a lens of fear based on his individual trauma and story. 
And I have to believe that they did that for quite some time. Long enough for the half of the entire crew of passengers from the Mayflower to die during their first winter. I don't buy into the fact that the Wampanoag Indians in Squanto didn't know that the pilgrims were there for six months. No, I think they knew and they were watching, trying to decide, do we fight or do we flee? Do we fight or do we flee? Because that's what fear and trauma does to us, right? It creates in us a fight or flight instinct. And so they were frozen, paralyzed by fear for some time. But here's the thing. Squanto did not allow that to be the final ending that was written of this story. The pilgrims likely would have died without his interference, and that would have been the ending of that story. But he chose not to let that happen. He didn't allow fear to be the last word. He chose courage. He chose mercy. He chose solidarity. He spoke over fear. Pilgrims, you can sit with us. He chose to be a conduit. You know, I think that's the most common reason we alienate others from sitting at the table with us. We fear. The unknown of the other is intimidating. And so we choose isolation or we choose a table with only our people. The ones we just get. The ones that get us. My people. This subtle fear we have that really starts quite innocently. Well, we know that fear is sinful. And so all of a sudden it becomes a gripping root. Which I believe is at the base of so many of our injustices worldwide. With people groups and women and children being oppressed in unprecedented ways in 2018. In 1863, at the height of the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln made Thanksgiving a national holiday to be celebrated every November. It had been celebrated in many colonies and many states across the Americas right since the very beginning, since that first Thanksgiving. It became a tradition that was repeated. But President Lincoln chose to make a proclamation to make Thanksgiving a nationally celebrated American holiday in 1863 because of this. This is interesting. Because of the hurting state of the country in the midst of a civil war centered on racial division and strife. In his proclamation to the American people when he made this a national holiday, he entreated the Americans he spoke to to ask God to commend his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife, and to heal the wounds of the nation by coming together to the table. In an age where we again find ourselves so divided, I believe that the table is a life raft again. It is level and wide and long, and it welcomes us all with dignity. And as we sit with different people groups, with people that are totally different than us, that have a different color skin and speak a different tongue and have different traditions than us, 
or that live in our own city, but we just don't understand. We just don't understand their way of life. As we sit across from them at the table, we have an opportunity to get pinholes through which to see the face of God. You see, I believe what Paul O'Neill from the Trans-Siberian Orchestra is remembered for. I believe that he was on to something. This person that composed this 60-piece orchestra and this heavy metal band and this team of vocalists and these incredible special effects and a team of dancers, dancers to carry joy and magic nationwide during the Christmas season. I believe he was on to something. Individually, we're fine. But together, we are so much better. There are two things I want to leave you with this morning. The first, as we officially enter this holiday season, is a challenge. I want to challenge you to lengthen and to widen and pull more seats up to your table this season. What that may look like for you may look very different for me or may look very different for the person next to you, but I want to challenge you to find a way to courageously communicate mercy and solidarity this season to someone very different from you. In a season where we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, right? That's what Christmas is all about. This moment of God with us coming to the world in human flesh. I want to challenge you with incarnation. This is what incarnation does. It says, um, we'll set up a table over here, and we'll set up a table over there, and we'll set up a table over there, and we'll set another one up right here, because we're just going to keep going and going and going. This one table isn't enough. We're just going to keep going, and we're going to find people who are hurting and who are lonely and who have been disenfranchised and who need a Savior and who need mercy and who need healing. And no matter where we have to go, we're going to set up another table. This is incarnation. It takes the table to anyone that needs a table to sit at. And I have this hunch that quite a few of us in this room have some tragedy or some trauma that we've experienced from people who are different than us, or maybe from people who are very similar to you, people who are in your own family. This season is traditionally a time of gathering around the table with our people. And I believe that many of us in this room have experienced some trauma and some tragedy and have a fear instinct even with our own people. So I want to challenge you this, this winter to do as Squanto did, to choose not to let fear write the last chapter of this story. Lengthen and widen and make room at your table. Incarnate Jesus at the risk of it being so awkward. It might get awkward. It definitely might. But as you get your insecurities out of your conduit, you're going to gather dry bones around your table, and you're going to get to experience as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings come to take the, comes to take the primary spot at your table, and he breathes life into dry bones, and he begins to resurrect them, and he chooses you as the participator, as the co-labor, as the co-creator of life. 
It is the most marvelous things. Get those insecurities and fear out of your conduit and you will be amazed at the miracle working power of the Holy Spirit in and through you. The second is this. This morning, this table, these two that are set up here, that we know that Jesus has added all kinds of seats to. These tables are our communion tables this morning. Communion is a place for us to remember our own salvation and to experience the mystery of a king and a lover who poured out his own blood so that we could sit with him. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28 says, While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. <laughs> Maybe I can break it. I'm not Jesus, but here you go. Um, and when he had given thanks, <laughs> I hear lots of memes that are going to be coming out of this later. Not cool. Uh, and he said, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins for many. Worship team, you can come on up here. You belong at this table this one up here. You have a place here. You are welcome here. Every man, woman, and child here this morning is welcome at this table. You don't need to be qualified. You don't have to have it together. You don't have to be the same as everyone else in this building. You don't have to take your mess and package it up and tie it with a ribbon. If you are here this morning, you are welcome at this table. You see, spiritual identity, it means that we are not what we do or what people say about us. And we are not what we have or the color of our skin or how we look. We defy the categories and classifications of this world. We have one identity that we raise as banners above every other one. We are sons and daughters of the living King. You belong at this table. Now more than ever, this is the life raft that we all need. I want to invite you to come to this table this morning. The way that we're going to do it is there's four stations set up. And you can come up as we worship. And you can take a piece of bread and dip it in the wine. This is gluten-free for those of you who have food allergies. You can dip it in the wine and then return to your seats as you have an opportunity to worship and connect with the one who says, you can sit here. You have a place at this table. I'm also going to invite our two pastors this morning, Pastor Corey and Pastor Cameron. They're gonna stand at either side of this stage. I want to invite you, if you are aching for belonging this morning, if you are in need of a savior, who seats you with him at his table. If you are hurting in the fear and the trauma and the tragedy of the past, you're wearing it on your sleeve and you need a new day. 
I want to encourage you to come forward to pray with one of our pastors or with one of our staff members. You are seen and you are known and you are so loved in this place. We're here to pray with you. But the only one you need is the one seated at the head of the table, Jesus Christ. And he can change everything in your life. He can get all those insecurities out of your conduit and rewrite a new chapter of your story that is miraculous and exciting and filled with adventure. But here's the coolest part, is that as we pour out all the trauma and tragedy and fear of our past experiences, there's just this incredible thing that happens, this transformation, this mystery, that as we pour out all the hurtful things that have been done to us by others, Jesus makes new wine. And that new wine heals us as we drink in it at his table. But that new wine is for the saving of many, not just for us. Lengthen and widen your table this holiday season. Please stand with me and pray. Jesus, you are so good. You are the author and perfecter and finisher of our faith. You take the things that other people have done to us, all the hurt and the yucky and the ouch, the things that should have crushed us, impressed us until we could no more. And Jesus, you take that and you make this mysterious, incredible new wine and you open up your table and you pull out a seat just for us and you call us son and you call us daughter and you put a crown on our heads. And then you give us a chair to pull up a seat for someone else. Jesus, I pray over this body this morning that you would just open the heavens over this place. Take the roof right off this building in this moment. Holy Spirit, pour out your power and your love and your transformation over this building. Allow us to encounter you, to be remembered of our salvation this morning at the communion table of the King and the lover that you are, that poured out your very own blood for us. Jesus, I pray for those who have yet to taste the cup of salvation in this house this morning. Jesus, give them the courage this morning to say no more. I'm going to choose a different chapter. I'm turning the page in this book. Let them run to you, Jesus. Give them the courage to run to you. Heal our body, Jesus. Heal the body of conduit so that this magna that you've given us of every man, every woman, and child would be a banner that we raise over our city that says, you can sit with us. You belong here. Welcome home. There's a place for you. We have a robe for you and a ring. Jesus, allow us to be conduits to this city, to our homes, to our churches, to places like Honduras that are far away. Transform your people, Jesus. We need you desperately. Come, encounter us in this place this morning. Come, Father.